Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. If you turn in that Bible to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25, we're going to read down, uh, get some verses in, 13, chapter 13, verse 14 or so, so in there, but uh, let's start with 12, 25. I want to remind you what we're doing today. We're in a sermon series called Drift, Drifting Away. And this was a scoop on the book of Hebrews. It was written to some Jewish Christians, uh, probably in Rome, that we were starting to think, okay, what's going on? Because it seems like some of them are starting to drift away. Some of them are getting distracted. We think perhaps it was because of persecution. And so the temptation was, let's give up this Jesus thing, let's give up this new covenant thing, and let's go back to Judaism, Christless Judaism. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't do it. We have a greater Jesus. We have a greater covenant. This is, this is not worth turning it back on, even if it means pain. And so this is what we're talking about today. I'm going to suggest you, as you look through this, when you get down to the end of uh, chapter 12, it starts talking about cannot be shaken. And in 13.1 and following, it talks about the unshakable life. So I just kind of want you to read that way as we look down. I'd like everybody to stand, please, in reverence to the Word of God as Miss Ashley reads for us. Thank you. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the, indicate the removing of what can be shaken that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper and I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial food, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Father, thank you for um, your faithfulness and how faithful you've been to Dayspring. Um, Lord, I pray that you would just um, be in this room in the next few minutes, um, be in Mr. Matt's words, help us to hear and receive what he has to say, um, Lord, and help us to go out into this world um, because we are blessed to be a blessing, Lord. And we love you and we give you glory for what you're going to do here today. Amen. So, as Miss Ashley just read, she's talking about the unshakable kingdom, and therefore, if we're going to be part of this kingdom, we need to have unshakable lives. 
what exactly does that mean for us to have unshakable lives? First off, I'm, we're going to go to chapter 13 and, and following, but I want you to get this, these verses in mind. Just at the end of chapter 12, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable sacrifice, an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So what does it mean that we could, in fact, offer to God an acceptable service? I think that's what chapter 13 is about. And so we're going to talk about that just a little bit today. But before we do that, did you notice verse 8? You've heard it your whole life, haven't you? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Can we just, uh, can we just say that together? And instead of just mumbling along, listen, I've been in churches all my life where we did uh, readings, and we always just mumble along. Could you, uh, like, pretend that this is really the central dynamic of the unshakable life today, your unshakable life? Let's read it. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today. Do that again. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what we're saying here is, hey, Jewish Christians, don't feel like you have to somehow do without Jesus because you can't do without him. This is the God that was yesterday. This is the God that is today, and this is the God that will be for the future. Bank your life on this yesterday, today, and forevermore God. T.S. Eliot once wrote about the hollow man, the empty man, blown to and fro by the wind. I was at, uh, just this week, in Denver, and uh, we were at the Evangelical Theological Society, which is, on the whole, where academics, guys with PhDs, get together and they read each other papers. It's truly, for me, an exceedingly boring week. I mean, it's tough to sit through. Uh, it's just like, wow, wow, wow. I remember I, was, I got, just got done with a session. My eyes were crossed. I think, boy, i got to go back to my hotel room and just lay around for a while and get my brain back. And, uh, and someone came up this close to me and says, hey, Matt. I'm thinking, uh-oh, I know this guy. And I cannot see him. I cannot figure out who this is. I'm thinking, oh, hey. <laughs> yeah, what do you do in that moment? Hey, big guy. <laughs> hey. And then it, then it all of a sudden, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I do see it. I did this. this is a guy that I've, I've known really for the last 30 years of my life. But haven't seen that much. And it looks like maybe he got a little older since the last time I saw him. Maybe his face a little puffier than what I remember. But all of a sudden dawned on me who this guy is. And he, he's a scholar. And he's worked a good bit on the book of Ecclesiastes. And I have a real interest in the book of Ecclesiastes. So remember, a couple years ago, we saw each other in the airport. He came up and said, hey, how you doing? We, we talked. He says, you know that word in Ecclesiastes, hevel? I said, yeah, I know that Hebrew word. How it reads in your Bible and mine is vanity of vanity, all is vanity. It's hevel, hevel, all is hevel. Or meaningless, meaningless, everything's meaningless. Hevel, hevel, everything's hevel. He says, I've come to believe that that's not the best translation. I've come to believe that the best translation of hevel, particularly in Ecclesiastes, is temporary. Temporary, temporary, everything is temporary. If everything's te uh, temporary, then guess what? 
It's just like the rest of the created order. It is temporary. It's not forever. It's not going to endure. And the thing in your life, says the writer of the Hebrews, that will endure when everything else is burned away, is Jesus. You need to bank your life on this Jesus. So the writer of Ecclesiastes says, my whole life's temporary. It's a terrible life. And the writer of Hebrews says, it will be terrible without this Jesus built into you. And so this hollow man, this empty man, blown to and fro by the wind, that doesn't have to be your life. You don't have to be hollow. You don't have to be empty. You can be full of Jesus. You can be full of that spirit. Now, I don't know if you ever heard of the preacher named John Ortberg. I, I, I happen to think he's a very insightful guy. He says, by the way, he says, the thing that has happened to me recently has been one of the most dramatic things in my life. I have discovered Happy Meals. I didn't know they even existed anymore, Happy Meals. I remember our kids were kids. They, they loved Happy Meals. We'd buy them Happy Meals. And Orberg says this, you know, when you get a Happy Meal, you're not just buying fries, McNuggets, and a dinosaur stamp. No, 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 no. The advertisers have convinced your kids that they are buying happiness. They're buying fulfillment. They're buying the real deal. And if they don't have it, they can't be happy. And so Orberg says, I'm dragging my kids all the time to get Happy Meals. Then Orberg says this. It's interesting about Happy Meals. When you get older, I've noticed we don't really get any smarter. It's just that our Happy Meals get more expensive. Hey, I really like that car. I want that car. Ooh, I really like these clothes. I have to have these clothes. Hey, look at that house. I want me a house like that. Give me that house. No matter how much we have to spend, no matter how much in debt we have to go, we want the happiness that this stuff, this temporary, this hollow, this empty stuff will bring us. And he says, all right, do you want an unshakable faith or do you want a happy meal faith? Because you're not likely to get both. And it's true, folks. The world offers us happy meals. Jesus offers unshakableness. And we've got to say, I opt in for an unshakable kingdom and an unchanging Christ. I have to have him at all costs. Give me the unshakable kingdom, and the unchanging Christ. Well, in 13.1 and following, it talks about uh, maybe more than this, but I've reduced it down to about eight major things. And I don't want to keep you here till one, so we're going to have to get moving on these things, okay? First thing is this. If you want an unshakable life, the writer of the Hebrew says, let love of the brethren continue. And I know if you're like me, you kind of yawn. Yeah, whatever. But the fact of the matter is, at the time of Christ in the early church, this was something wholly unique. I mean, the Greeks didn't even think that their gods were capable of love. They thought it was some kind of defective character that a god would love. But here we have a god that loves, and because he loves us, we can love each other. And it was Tertullian who, in the second and third century, said this, the pagans are looking at us as Christians and saying, wow, look, they love one another. 
they actually love one another. You're thinking, yeah, why wouldn't they? Well, no, 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 you don't get it. That was different. That was unique. Nobody else was getting together back then and saying, hey, we don't have to exist for ourselves. We can exist for each other. We can exist for, I can exist for you. I want to pour my life into you. Listen, what most everybody was getting together for back then, can I say what most people get together for today, and can I say what most churches get get together for today is a question. Ubi est mia. You need to write that down. Everybody needs a favorite Latin phrase. Ubi est mia. Where is mine? Where's mine? I want to know what's in it for me. Almost everything we do, even as Christians today, we're getting in because it will be good for me. And yet Christians back then were getting together because they want to know what was best for you and how can I be Christ to you and how can I love you. That's a whole different way of living. You know, we, we yawn at that, but I think it's a whole different way of living even today. By the way, there's a guy named Aristides who lived in 125 AD. He said exactly the same thing Tertullian says. Look, they love one another. And everyone found that so unique that you've heard me talk about Keith Miller. He's got this book, great title of the book, The Scent of Love. And Keith Miller said this, you're walking down the road in the first century and you're going down an alley and all of a sudden you hear something over to your right. You look in, just a quick glance, you look in and there's a circle of people and they're looking into one another's eyes with tears and with compassion and with kindness. And you think, that's a little strange. That doesn't happen. And you go down, but, but then for some reason you feel strangely attracted to come back and to look in again and say, what is that? What are they doing? And what that was was the church at Ephesus in a little home with the door wide open in the alley. And what they're doing is loving on one another with tender eyes, with kindness, even with tears. And they did it to such an extent that Keith Miller says it gave off the scent of love. And people in the first century, the second century, the third century, particularly those centuries, they were absolutely attracted to that love. And that's how the church grew. The church actually didn't say, Ubi est mia, where's mine? They said, how can I love you? Teach me how I can love you. I want to love you better. And it's an extraordinary church that gets that message. First thing, if you want an unshakable life, let love of the brethren continue. Second thing is this, show hospitality. Now, the Jews were taught, and they taught one another this, that the greatest thing that ever happened pretty much was when Abraham showed hospitality. I guess the greatest thing in hospitality that ever happened was Abraham, three strangers walked up one day, and he said, come on in, sit in my tent, I'll feed you a good meal. And in the middle of all that, these three strangers, angels perhaps, they're saying, hey, you're going to have a son. And uh, the angels hear uh, the wife laughing. <laughs> yeah, right, Abraham and me, we're going to have children, right. 
And the guy said, no, you're really going to have a son. And on that son, we'll establish a nation. It will be a launch pad for all the rest of the nations to know, and they wouldn't have known this at that point, but to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And they always thought, the Jews always thought, now that was one incredible moment. And they thought in such a way that they said, and that's why we want to show hospitality to strangers. That's why we want to show hospitality to one another. That's why we want to show hospitality to the people on the fringes of Dayspring. We want to show hospitality to say, come on into our homes. Let us show you what it means to love one another. And they did it. I'm going to tell you, if this church is ever to take off, it'll take off because we show radical hospitality. We are willing to invite people in our homes to laugh with them, to feed them, to, to, to enjoy hilarity together. If we become that kind of church, this church takes off like never before. And I'm going to tell you, if we show hospitality, we'll be very much in the long line of Abraham to say, and that's how the nations can be blessed when we show hospitality. Just someone was here this morning that... Uh, was here years ago at Dayspring. And she and her husband now live in Fairbanks. Actually, he does not. He's in South Korea right now. They're in the military. And the father came up to me just a moment ago. They, they had the whole family. The father came up and says, I want to thank you for what Dayspring has done in my daughter's life. I says, well, what was that? He says, well, he says, right now she's up there and she's not thinking, hey, how can I take care of my needs? She is thinking, how can I take these younger people, uh, most of them two or three years younger than she is, to say, this is how you can deal with your husband not being around you right now. He might be in South Korea too right now with my husband, but this is how we're going to make it. We're going to love each other. We're going to show each other hospitality. We are going to be unshakable for one another. He says, you, you want to know what happened last week? I said, what happened last week? He says, one of the girls came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because of that love and because of that hospitality. I said, Dayspring did this for her? Yes! And I'm thinking, all right, you want to know how to reach the nations? You want to know how to reach a husband and a, maybe a wife in South Korea right now? That's how you do it. Dayspring showed hospitality. She's in Fairbanks, Alaska right now, showing hospitality. And men's lives, women's lives are being touched all the way to South Korea today because of hospitality. And the writer of the Hebrews says, if you want an unshakable life, that's how you do it. Let the love of the brethren continue. Show hospitality. And then this. Remember prisoners and the ill-treated. Remember those who are struggling in life. We ought to be a people, says the writer of Hebrews, that runs to the sound of the pain. Remember, I, was, I love that phrase, by the way. Uh, back during the time of the War of Independence, they would say, hey, listen, run to the sound of the guns. If you hear guns going off somewhere... That means there's a skirmish going on. Get over there. Run to the sound of the guns. What we like to do here at Dayspring is run to the sound of the pain. Because if there's pain going on, God wants us in the middle of it, loving and showing hospitality and reaching out. John Wesley started the Methodist Church back in England. Actually, really didn't become the Methodist Church until it came to America with Francis Asbury. But John Wesley started the Methodist movement. And what happened was, he would go out and he would talk to miners. In fact, they usually do it at 5 a.m. He'd go out at 5 a.m. and 
and they had to go to work here, but before they had to go to work, they were willing to show up for John Wesley to hear him preach. So he'd preach. And uh, some of them came to know the Lord. And when they came to know the Lord, what happened was they were transformed. So instead of drunk men now that beat their wives and kick their children, they recognized if Jesus Christ is transforming my life, I've got to live different. And so this work began to happen. They became radical believers. They started showing up at work on time. They quit drinking. They quit beating their wives. They quit kicking their children. And pretty soon, there was an uplift to the whole nation. In fact, many scholars will say that John Wesley saved England from a French revolution because of that kind of love and hospitality. I love it because that's where we light our candle is that the man named John Wesley who lit his candle at the man named Jesus Christ. And so what we say is, all right, is that possible that we could change lives like that? Well, Wesley said, yeah, we are changing lives, but what happens is they now are showing up to work on time. They're not drinking anymore, and they're getting promotions at work, and pretty soon that guy's now in charge of the mine, and pretty soon he's got wealth. And Wesley lived long enough, several decades of working that plan, where all of a sudden now he's beginning to notice we're getting lazy. We are now rich and lazy. We are now comfortable. He saw it. He says, this is not what God planned for our lives. He wanted us to reach out to the prisoner. He wanted us to reach out to the ill-treated. John Wesley wrote a sermon called Sermon Number 98. You need to read it. Write it down. Sermon Number 98. Google it. That's how I always find it. Google it. Sermon Number 98, John Wesley. You'll go right to it. It's on visiting the sick. And basically for John Wesley, the sick were anybody that were really down on their luck, anybody that was really struggling, anybody that had serious need going on in their lives. And so he said, let's, let's make sure that we're visiting the sick. But then he noticed, once they got rich, no one wanted to visit the sick anymore. You know what they'd say? That's just not my calling. John Wesley, sermon number 98. Let me read you a little bit of it. One great reason why the rich in general have so little sympathy for the poor is because they so seldom visit them. Hence it is that one part of the world does not know how the other suffers. Many of them do not know because they do not care to know. They keep out of the way of knowing it and then plead their voluntary ignorances an excuse for their hardness of heart. Indeed, sir, said the person of large substance, I'm a very compassionate man. But to tell you the truth, I do not know anybody in the world that is in want. Now, how did this come to pass, says Wesley? Why, he took care to keep out of their way. And if he fell upon them any of them unawares, he passed over on the other side. Does that sound like a parable of Jesus? Passed over on the other side. It's like being in Jackson, Mississippi. You know, I don't think I know anybody that's poor. Well, you ain't trying very hard. Do you know anybody's a victim of crime? Anybody sexually abused? Anybody in prison? Anybody with disease? Because if you don't, you're not trying very hard. Because you don't have to go far to start running in to people with serious need. And John Wesley said the same thing back in England. We've got to go to them. God wants us to go to them. All kinds of people that say, I, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And I wonder if that's true. Because Jesus said, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. 
if you want a personal relationship with Jesus, start following him. But what you're going to notice is you're going to follow him right to the prison. You're going to follow him right to period, uh, places of need. You're going to follow him to John Hopkins to be with kids. You're going to follow him to places where no one else wants to go and do things no one else wants to do, least of all the rich. It's not my calling. Jesus Christ says, yes, it is. No matter how rich you are. Now, this is what Wesley said. I know what the rich are going to do. You know, <clears throat> because we have money, we're not going to go take care of the sick. We're going to send a nurse. That's what we'll do. Yeah, we'll send a doctor. Let's pool our funds and send a doctor. They need a doctor more than any. And, and John Wesley says, you know what? Not a bad idea. Send a nurse. Send a doctor. But that does not excuse you from personally going and having a personal relationship with Jesus in the sick, in the hungry, in the thirsty, in the imprisoned, in the downtrodden. That's God's call for everybody here today. No one here gets to say, that's just not my calling. Yes, it is. Jesus says, inasmuch as you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it unto me. So go to hell. But I don't really remember Jesus saying that. If you haven't read the 25th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, have you? Because it's all right there. And Wesley used that in sermon number 98 to say, we must run to the sound of the pain. And the writer of the Hebrews says, we are supposed to be all about the prisoner. And we're supposed to be all about the ill-treated, no matter where they're found. First thing, let love of the brethren continue. Second thing, show hospitality. Third thing, remember the prisoners and the ill-treated. And then this, make sure you get the topic of sex right. Make sure the marriage bed is what it's supposed to be. And that's a tough topic, but here we go. The marriage bed simply at that time was all about this. By the way, anybody ever read Leviticus 18? You need to do that sometime. It says, here's all the people you're not supposed to be having relations with. Uh, it's quite a list. And the Greeks <laughs> didn't know or care about Leviticus 18, so they were doing it all. Most men who were Greek... Uh, would actually get married about age 30. Before that, they were having sex. They were having sex with slaves, with prostitutes, with animals. You're thinking, whoa, 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 no. Have you read Leviticus 18? I'm going to ask you that one more time. All the way back, <laughs> a long time before the writer of the Hebrews ever took up a pen, it says, hey, by the way, don't do it with animals. And the Greeks were. They were having sex with everything, everybody. And then they get married at age 30. And here's the way they described Christians back in the day. Here's the way it was described. Aristides, remember that guy, the, the philosopher, 125 AD? Aristides said, and I, and I quote to you, Christians, let me tell you about them, O king. He's writing this to the king. Christians don't commit adultery. They don't fornicate. Their women are as pure as virgins. And their daughters are modest. You get a load of this, king. The men, they keep themselves from every unlawful union and from all uncleanness. And they say, 
that that's one of the ways you knew people were Christian is they didn't just love one another, but they were pure and virgins and they waited till marriage and then they didn't have sex outside of marriage. It was a beautiful thing. But folks, that message is for you and I today as well. If you want an unshakable life, we've got to make sure that we're not having sex outside of marriage. And yes, staring at porn on a computer screen is having sex outside of marriage. Looking at that woman going down the road and making sure you're catching the backside for a good long time is having sex outside of marriage. We are supposed to be pure and kind and good, but at least this sexually upright. And you cannot be an unshakable church. You cannot have an unshakable part in the kingdom if you decide to have sex on your terms and not on God's. And so, here we go. The unshakable life, make sure you get the wedding bed right. And then this, be freed from the love of money. <laughs> wow. Mississippi's got some problems right now. We've got a Christian governor. Friend of mine that decided, I want a lottery. And so he decided... We're going to have a lottery. I'm going to tell the Speaker of the House, I'm going to twist the arm of the Lieutenant Governor until we get a lottery. Now, a lottery is this. You give up some money in order for a chance to take money from other people. It's all about greed. It's all about, I want more money. I want more stuff. I want more. I want more. I want more. By the way, casinos are already that. You just need to know your pastor suggests you in a strong a way as I know how to say it, don't do the casino thing. Don't do the lottery thing. Don't do it. And I'm going to tell you why. For this very same reason the writer of the Hebrews says don't do it, because Jesus is enough. You don't need more money. You need Jesus. You don't need more greed. You don't need the lottery. You don't win, need to win in the casinos. You need the Lord. And there's too many of us that have decided, if I just had more money, I could be happy. I'm going to tell you, they've done the studies. It doesn't prove itself out. The happiest people in the world are not Americans, and we're one of the richest nations in the world. Did you know that? You know where they go to find happiness? In these uh, two-thirds world countries. They're happier than we are, and they're living, living in a lean-to shack and walking around barefoot. How, Henry, you've seen it over and over again, haven't you? You go to these places, how can they be so happy and we'd be so frustrated and running around and trying to get more and trying to win the lottery. And let's go to the slot machine, because if I win, it won't happen, folks. They've done the studies, and it shows the winners of the lottery aren't happier. In fact, some of them commit suicide. Some of them turn around and just decide my life's so miserable. And you think, yeah, okay, I know. But I would handle it differently. I'd like to just at least go through a little million-dollar test. I know there's a $1.5 million dollar 1.5 billion dollar prize out there right now. Can I just try just at 1 million? It won't make you happy. Only Jesus can bring you the fulfillment that you've longed for. You have a God-shaped vacuum and a 1 million dollar lottery prize won't fill that vacuum. A happy meal won't fill that vacuum. 
that new house, that better car, maybe get rid of this wife and get a new wife, that, it won't do it. What will do it? Jesus, the Jesus that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That Jesus. Be freed from the love of money. Jesus says you already have more. You have me. Get sex right. Be freed from the love of money. Then this, imitate the faith of your fruitful leaders. The leaders that have had impact on your life, that spoke the word into your life, go ahead and say, Lord, I see your grace alive in them. I want to be like them, at least at this particular aspect. Now, I'm going to tell you here, this is just a quick tip for you. Never say, I want to be like that one guy. That's kind of a dangerous thing. Because that one guy's got some shortcomings, got some fears, got some failures. But I'm good. I walked into the room one day. Of, I, was, I, was, I was student body president. Now, why a seminary even has a student body president? We never had one, but anyway. Since we had one, I decided to, the first and only time I've ever run for office, student body president of Asbury Theological Seminary, and I won. Mary and a friend of mine went around and campaigned. No one campaigned for these stupid things. We campaigned, and then we won, and then I, th I thought, oh, no, now what am I going to do? i got to go to a bunch of meetings I don't want to go to. i got to meet with, oh. And it was a terrible year because I was student body president. Did a lousy job, by the way, just FYI. But one of the things I decided to do on the last couple weeks I was at Asbury Seminary, I decided to go around to guys, to professors in particular and administrators that had done an extraordinary job and just go in and say thank you on behalf of the student body for being uniquely different and spending time with students. I went to three professors that really had done that in an amazing way. I went to another guy who I didn't like. Uh, I went in, in fact, the first thing I said to him was, I don't like you. Now, there was a, well, I don't even know why I'm saying that, but I'm just saying, I went into this guy to make amends. I'm student body president, and because I am that, I'm going to be able to get an easy meeting with him. I went in there. First thing I said to him was, I got to admit to you, I don't like you. I told him why I didn't like him. We had a nice talk. What I did notice, however, and I've always remembered this, is on the wall, he had a bunch of men's pictures, probably a dozen, maybe 15, of men's pictures. I just kept, my eyes kept being drawn toward these pictures. And I, I finally said, what are these pictures? And uh, Dr. Hunter said, these pictures are men who poured their lives into me. And I am what I am today because of these men. I asked the Lord, help me to imitate your goodness through them. I thought everybody, every man, woman, boy, girl, everybody ought to have a wall like that. Hebrews says, look at those people, follow them, imitate them. It's not them that's great, it's Jesus through them. Every good and perfect gift comes from where? Comes from the Father of lights. So if someone's good, don't think, hey, I want to be good, I want to be like them because they're like that. No, you want to be like them because you see something of Jesus through them, and I want to emulate the Jesus I see in them. Anyway, I think everybody ought to have at least five pictures of people that say, I would like to imitate the Jesus that I have seen dramatically in them because I think it's important that these concepts, these biblical concepts, need to have some flesh on them. You know what I mean? And they become more real to us when they have flesh on. And we ought to be able to look at these people and say, I like the Jesus I see in them. Lord, help me to be 
like them. So imitate the faith of your fruitful leaders. Then this, beware of strange teachings. Be strengthened by grace. Anybody ever notice that Christianity has some strange teaching in it sometimes? Now, I don't mean what you hear here. But you ever, like, watch TV? I mean, there's some strange things that come across TV preachers. I'm not saying all of them. Some of them are good. I'll admit that. But some of them are just strange. You think, what are they teaching? I never heard that. And then you get fascinated by it. You know, I wonder what the seventh toe of the beast really means. I don't know what the seventh toe of the beast really means, but if it means anything at all, it means be Christ-like as Jesus is Christ-like. Be holy as I am holy. And any teaching that leads you away from holiness, any teaching that leads you away from Christ-likeness, anything that captures your imagination that isn't, I want to follow this Jesus to the end of the world and on into eternity, any teaching that messes you up like that is a strange teaching. You need grace. Be strengthened by grace. And that grace will lead you right to Jesus. I look at Revelation, I'm thinking, I don't know what this means. It wasn't until I started recognizing this is a book about Jesus. Who knew? I thought it was about the end times. I thought it was about the beast. I thought it was about 666. It has all those things, but at the end of the day, it's about our Lord and Savior. And if any idea gets lifted out of Revelation, it ought to be that one. Jesus is yesterday. Jesus is today, and Jesus is our future. Praise be to God. Imitate the faith of your fruitful leaders. Beware of strange teachings. And then this, go out to Jesus. <coughs> now, remember, this writer of the Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians and they're beginning to get persecuted. <clears throat> One of the reasons they're getting persecuted is because they, they believe that Messiah, and now they believe the Son of God and Messiah, Jesus, was crucified for our sins. But the Jewish crowd was saying, no, 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 no. When Messiah comes, Messiah will put the smack down on the Roman Empire. He will not go through the scandal of a cross. He will not be crucified on a Roman gibbet. Won't happen. Can't happen. That is disgraceful. And what's being said here is this. They took Jesus outside of the city to crucify him. Jewish Christians, you need to go out there too. You need to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow after this Jesus. This Jesus who is yesterday, this Jesus who is today, and this Jesus who is forevermore. Go outside to him. Embrace the disgrace of the Greco-Roman world. Embrace the disgrace of the Jews. You are no longer just Jews. You are now Christian. Embrace the cross. Finally this. Seek the city which is to come. Seek the city which is to come. Now, folks, we say it all the time around here. You are who you are because of your future. I always feel like i got to explain that. You are who you are today because of your future. 
what you believe about your future. Remember, remember Abram. Well, well, shoot, let's go all the way back to Genesis, uh, earlier in Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply. Said it to Adam and Eve. I want you to have a bunch of kids, and I want those kids to be holy as I am holy. Now, it didn't say all those terminologies, but that's the gist. That was before the fall. I want you to have babies, a bunch of them, because I want my image to proliferate across this globe. Uh, their, their future, even after they had to fall, even then, be fruitful and multiply. We've got to make sure we're proliferating this people. And then here comes Noah. Noah, imagine that. Noah was who he was. He built the boat that he built because of his wet future. You know what I mean? Now, you talk about some faith. Whoa. He's building a boat today. As far as we know, never been rain. Never been rain. So you're doing what now again, Noah? Help me with that. They say they got one of these things now up in Kentucky. Anybody seen it? Whoa. Big old thing. I don't know how long it would take some people to build that. But however long it took them, they built it. They got on it. And here came the rain. And then he said to Abram, Abram. I want you to leave your father. I want you to leave all your possessions and come and uh, I'm going to show you the land where I'm going, to, I'm going to bring to you and I am going to make a nation out of you and from that nation, all the rest of the nations will be blessed. And because of that future, Abraham had faith and did it. Jesus one day comes up to a bunch of disciples and he says, come follow me and I will I will make you. And they with faith said, okay, we don't know exactly what this means. By the way, does any of you know what it means in the next year of your life to follow Jesus? The answer to that is yes and no, mostly no. We do not know. They had no idea what's going to happen in the next three years. Abraham Noah had no, Noah had no idea. He had the big idea, but he didn't have all the nuances, and neither do we. And yet, follow Jesus, we will. Follow him. We will. No matter what happens, we will. Somebody told me, I don't know if it's true or not, that that, that song, I, I've Decided to Follow Jesus, came from an Indian Christian. I don't know if it's true or not. Indian Christian who basically says, you know, getting persecuted, doesn't matter. I'm following Jesus. The world behind me, the cross before me, I'm following Jesus. Though none go with me, I'm going to follow Jesus. Guna Kumar was in town. You all remember our friend Guna from India? He said, how's it going, Guna? He says, rough. He says, what are you talking about? He says, it's getting serious in India. Serious persecution in India. Our churches are struggling right now, Matt, because of the persecution. Now, when Guna started following Jesus, he didn't know all that was going to happen to him. He didn't know he was going to come to our seminary and graduate. He didn't know he was going to go back home and plant 800 churches. He didn't know that thousands of Hindus would come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because of God's work through him. And he didn't know that he was going to get persecuted in the year 2018, but it's happening. And he says, though none go with me, I will follow. The world behind me, the cross before me. No matter what happens, I'm following the Lord. And he can say that, and you can say it, and these Jewish Christians could say it, because the best days are yet to come. And the reason the best days are yet to come are because of, I need the next slide there, bud, is because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and forevermore. 
And inasmuch as we can embrace that, our best days yet to come. Can we say this again? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today. Yeah, that sounded a little bit like you don't quite believe it. Do you believe it? Stand up. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today. One more time. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and for. And if that is an affirmation, not just of your lips, but of your heart, your best days are indeed yet to come. They might be days of persecution. They might be days where people are gossiping about you. They might be days when everything seems to be going wrong, and yet you can say in the midst of tough days, I have an unshakable faith, and I have an unchanging Savior. And my Savior is yesterday, my Savior is today, and my Savior is forevermore. Thanks be to God Almighty. Lord, we love you today. Make us an unshakable people. Make Dayspring an unshakable church. In the name of the Father and the Son and our precious Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen? Amen. God bless you, Dayspring. Thank you.